Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Radio Westeros live scream. The horror of it all. Hello and welcome. This is the Radio West inaugural live scream. I, as you can see, am, am Zombie Yoke Boy. And thanks to you all for tuning in. Today on this most horrid of Halloween nights, we bring you a selection of screams and scares that will leave you trembling in your bed tonight. George has written many horror stories in his time as a writer and incorporates the genre with its archetypes and tropes into A Song of Ice and Fire. Today we will focus on The Others, Kyburn and Robert Strong, The Night Fort, and more. So let me introduce you to our resident witch, Lady Gwyn. Hello, hello, good evening everyone. Happy Halloween and welcome to the live scream, um, which was born, if you guys were with us a few weeks ago, it was born from a slip of the tongue. <laughs> but so glad that we are here today. And we got lots of spooky things to talk about. And joining us for this discussion is our friend and fellow YouTuber, Mr. Joe Magician, Joseph Necromancer MD, I believe is his actual full name. Yeah, I went I went for the I went full spook today, uh, for the month. That's what I changed my thing to on Twitter. Everyone for some reason calls me well, actually Chloe calls me that she calls me Doctor Magician MD, so I decided to just play into it. She's nice. I hope nice. she realizes that was a joke for her. She probably does. Um, yeah. <laughs> <I'm sure. laughs> I am, of course, uh, Joe Magician from the Joe Magician YouTube channel. Um, lots of spooky stuff over there. I got my special germ hat going with my emerald uh, turtle. Normally a prize for the streams when we read a, cert a certain amount of likes. But I figured dressing up as germ, I even got a shitty beard going, just like germ. There so, we go. <laughs> and a Stark shirt, so... I think that's really all you need to pretend to be Germ. Wear, really? wear his memorabilia, have bad facial hair, and wear a hat. You got it. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> okay, well, like you said, we got a lot to talk about. Before we get started, we're going to tell you, as usual, spoilers, everything. Tonight we're going to add a 
trigger warning because we are talking about the worst of the worst characters, uh, some of whom are guilty of some very bad atrocities. So there will be discussion of uh, Gregor Clegane and um, some of the very terrible things that he has done to a lot of women of all ages. So bear that in mind. Otherwise, uh, let's get started. Joe Boy, what are we starting with? We're going to start with those dastardly others, the icy zombies who plague the forests. And why don't we begin with a reading from the first prologue. (gasps) The broken sword would be his proof. Garrod would know what to make of it. And And if not him, then surely that old bear, Mormont, or Maester Aemon. Would Garrod still be waiting with the horses? He had to hurry. Will rose. Sir Waymar Royce stood over him. His fine clothes were a tatter, his face a ruin. A shard from his sword transfixed the blind white pupil of his left eye. The right eye was open, the pupil burned blue. It saw. The broken sword fell from nerveless fingers. Will closed his eyes to pray. Long, elegant hands brushed his cheek, then tightened around his throat. They were gloved in the finest moleskin and sticky with blood. Yet the touch was icy cold. So, there's our first reading. We'll be doing several readings this this evening. And the prologue of A Game of Thrones reads like a short story from the horror genre. Well, really, it is a short horror story. So, my first question to you guys is, how does George build tension through this chapter, Lady Gwynne? Well, he really uses all the elements of suspense, right? The He's got language and imagery of fear and darkness prevailing there. The tension between the three characters is typical of horror and suspense. Uh, all that, that precedes, you know, the, the actual horrific events of the chapter. In fact, their interpersonal tension, it actually accentuates the building tension in the environment around them which is going to crescendo in something wholly unexpected (laughs) and the deaths of two of the three men. I would answer that, first of all, George puts us in this wilderness. It's a place out of reach of men and their laws. And in the first line, he tells us, we should start back, but they don't go back. Within the first few lines... We sense trouble is brewing, and it's Waymar's immediate cockiness that provides the obstacle to our character's safety. As Lady Gwynne said, this conflict causes the tension and suspense this horror story needs from the offset. Also in this opening gambit, Garrod says that men have no business with the dead, Here, George is planting the notion of the undead into our unconscious mind. George takes the foreshadowing further with clever use of metaphor and simile. At one point, Waymar's cloak 
is described as looking like something half alive. Oh, half alive, I get it, George. (laughs) Will becomes more afraid than he has ever been. Garrod and Will can sense danger. The reader certainly can. Yet Waymar will not listen until it's too late. Oh, very spooky. Uh, I just I just want to say I love that we're starting off with the Game of Thrones prologue, you know, thinking about Waymar and the others and everything about this chapter is one of my favorite things as um, those who uh, know my videos would would know I've made two, no, three, two videos and three live streams, mostly about just this prologue. It's one of my favorites. And um, one critical way that he really builds his tension is, uh, as you were talking about Yoke Boy through the setting. And as the sort of folks that would probably be reading a fantasy series, we're the kind of people that spend a lot of our lives indoors, warm, and in comfort. George instead starts out the series with the opposite. He has his characters are in the deep, dark woods. They are cold, and they feel like they are in danger. So instantly it's throwing you off. The woods themselves have this sort of primal fear in most people anyway, Um, especially the dark, spooky ones of the aptly named Haunted Forest. I see you, George. I see you. <laughs> yeah. it's, it has to do with the fear that you can't see everywhere around you. There are hidden places everywhere. There could be predators. There could be someone tracking you. And he really plays that up um, through his characters. And then, of course, George confirms these fears in one crystallizing moment. When he has the two expert rangers and the one green boy be attacked by camouflage murderous ice demons, which is maybe... The personification of the worst thing you could imagine that would be lurking around the corner in the woods from you. It's like all of it bundled up into one crazy, scary thing. It's it's a distilled, like, primal fear that everyone has. Well, most people have when they go into the deep, dark, scary woods. But not only that, he creates tension by establishing that Will and Garrett are expert rangers. They know what they're doing. They... I mean, Waymar knows nothing. He's a dumbass. Okay, Waymar's the dumbass. But the other two, they have—they should have full command of the scenario, as spooky and scary as it is. And he leverages that to push tension into your mind. He does a similar thing um, in other places, but notably with the Sand Snakes and Ario Hota. Um, Ario Hota is established as a great warrior who's afraid of nobody until he comes across the Sand Snakes. And all of a sudden, all Ario, Ario can think about is how they're going to kill everyone around him, and he has to be afraid. It's a very clever way of George um, informing you of what you should be thinking about what's happening. And he does the same thing here. If these rangers who know everything and are totally prepared for what's happening are being spooked and uncomfortable and want to go back, he's telling you, even if even if you don't quite believe him, that in-universe this is like the scariest thing you can imagine. Their expertise, in a way, is being used against you as a reader. Excellent. And as we heard in the reading at the end of the chapter, Waymar is resurrected as a sort of zombie. Why did George begin his magnum opus saga with horror? Because it's not really horror all the way through, isn't it? It's if you took this chapter away, you don't enter horror when we're in Winterfell. So why did he begin there, Lady Wynne? Well, something we've said before is that prologues exist in epic fantasies uh, to make promises to the reader. Uh, this one 
promises death and fear, which are two of the prevailing themes in this series. So if you think about it, death and fear are things that every single point of view character has to grapple with at some point. So not to mention darkness and devastation, which are all of which are present here. The prologue shows us where we're going, though the way is going to be long and meandering. Uh, and as for using the conventions of horror to show us this way, well, let's take a moment to nod to George's roots as a horror writer. In 2017, when he was discussing the development of his story Night Flyers for sci-fi, he commented about his forays into the horror genre, which were most notably the story Sand Kings and Night Flyers, by saying the inspiration for both of those stories was a statement that I read somewhere by a critic to the effect that sci-fi and horror uh, were opposites and fundamentally incompatible. As a lifelong fan of both, that assertion struck me as nonsense, so I set out to prove it wrong by blending the two genres together. So that worked out pretty well for him. Both of those things stories stand as some of his most successful works, uh, and in fact, before it was a TV series, Night Flyers was a movie, which was not all that well received. Nonetheless, George credits it with saving his career, which by the mid-80s had reached sort of a low point. I think this was around the time that he says he had actually considered becoming a real estate agent. That was immediately after uh, Armageddon Rag, I think, but it was still, it was in that 80s, late, later 80s. Anyways, he says Night Flyers, the movie, was not a huge hit, but it's a film that I have very warm feelings toward. Night Flyers may not have saved my life, but in a very real sense, it saved my career and everything I've written since exists in no small part because of that 1987 film. So to say that George loves horror, has a giant soft spot for it, actually credits it with, uh, you know, saving it, uh, saving his career, which uh, we should all be very thankful for. And, uh, you know, especially if he can weave it in with supposedly incompatible genres, it's all probably an understatement. So this is, it's, huge for him to include this in this epic fantasy interesting stuff especially uh shrieks in horror when you said that it nearly ended his career <laughs> <laughs> i'm surprised he hasn't written like a story now as like um like a fantasy real estate agent if that's like what was actually going through his head so much of his stories are right. autobiographical how is that not made it into one by now come on george <laughs> yes i know it's in there maybe Let's it's in wild it. cards maybe he's got it maybe, maybe that's drawer. nimble dick he's just <laughs> oh, showing you around the local places <laughs> oh <laughs> let me show you the whispers a fine deal on this property <laughs> okay getting back to the prologue and the, the question about why it's slotted in given that it's not really a saga all about horror i think george wanted to bring immediate darkness to his saga to set a tone without the prologue the setup on the whole would feel very different but with fantasy prologues you get to include something you otherwise couldn't so here we get the best glimpse of the antagonist others in the first book. The horror angle captivates us and gives us an immediate adrenaline rush. While we're reading through the early Stark chapters, part of our brain is still wondering about those icy beings and the zombies. We are introduced to a form of magic, and so George is letting us know a lot about his fantasy world. 
with the others being a rather slow burn sort of enemy. They're often on the fringes of the story. This prologue seems essential in the setup of the saga as a whole. And the horror element, which really had to come with the others, is meant to be addicting and create instant and deep intrigue. Joe? I'm still thinking about the idea of George R. R. Martin, real estate agent. <laughs> the things he would point out. And actually, you got, have you guys seen the stories about what he's doing in Santa Fe with his um, his castle he's trying to get built in with his library and all that? I didn't know about the castle, no. Oh, yeah, I knew, knew he's building some sort of... It, it's like one foot too high or something. It's The bigger problem is that it's a castle in the middle of Santa Fe. The, the court filings are amazing, but... I guess he has not given up his interest in uh, real estate. Uh, <laughs> but back but back to the question. Uh, I recently guested on the Learning to Hands podcast with Maester Mary and Clint of the Laughing Tree. And the topic for that was also just the undead. We talked about the undead in depth legally and where they are in A Song of Ice and Fire. And when I was getting ready for that, I decided to just crack open George R. R. Martin's bibliography and just go through them and be like, how many of these actually feature the undead, or zombies in some sense. And I just sort of gave up counting because it is near constant in a lot of his stories. I mean, we talked about Night Flyers. Meat House Man is obstense is basically a, uh, a sci-fi zombie story. The Glass Flower sort of has it in a way where he asked the question, like, is Claire Namas actually alive? It, he does this thing all the time. So the idea that he would start off A Song of Ice and Fire with horror and be, go into these elements makes perfect sense because that's largely his pattern. He likes using these things to shock and and draw you in 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 a way that I mean, there's other parts of a song of ice and fire he wants you to read. There's obviously a lot of very random parts and different topics, but he he as a writer very much believes that the best way to get somebody to keep reading is to scare the ever living crap out of them, and that's that's sort of his pattern. And when you think about even this prologue and how it relates to his other chapters. I mean, when you think about Garrett and Will and the fear they fear, fear they feel <laughs> in this chapter, um, that resonates further. He loves taking his characters and putting them in places where they are confronting the very, I mean, what's, what's the phrase? The heart in conflict with himself. He likes pushing them exactly to the breaking point. Ned and King's Landing, Catelyn trying to win a war with Rob, Tyrion suddenly being desirable in power. He's putting his characters through the same thing that Will and Garrett are going through. They're confronting their worst fears, and it's often, much like happens to the two of them, um, breaking their world around him. George is a very cruel, cruel author. Uh, I also have many other thoughts about the prologue and my uh, my theory of killing of a ranger about how the others may have mistaken Waymar Royce for Jon Snow, but in a real way, the prologue is a preview for the long winding paths and the terrifying nature of what George is going to do to them. And in particular, Jon Snow. I mean, you don't have to believe my theory to understand that Jon Snow and Waymar Royce are big parallel characters and that his story is likely going to go somewhere around the same path leading to a fundamental test of his character about with all that he fears most. And will he be, you know, a man of the Night's Watch or will he turn and run? That seems to be kind of the, the central thing he's trying to do to most of his characters, test them at that exact breaking point. Uh, and as I said, the, the others really stay on the fringes of the story, don't they? Even as far as we've got five books in, they've, 
they haven't made kind of monumental inroads. But one of the places that they appear and it's off page is at Hard Home. So I wondered what what you think happened up at Hard Home with the supposed you know others invasion there and what what are the dead things in the water and so on so i think i'll begin here after mance's attack on the wall the wildlings dispersed and some of them fled however they were vulnerable and desperate spiritualist mother mole had a vision of ships picking them up from hard home it was kind of wishful thinking <laughs> And Hard Home itself does uh, have a tragic history. There are others and whites in the vicinity, as we know. There are reports of wildlings eating their own dead. And then slave ships, slaver ships, come to Hard Home and start collecting the wildlings and take them off to perhaps a fate worse than death. Mother Mole really misunderstood her prophetic vision and... The Night's Watch ships do arrive, but it seems too late. Cotterpike tells of dead things in the water. This could be whites trying to board the Night's Watch ships, or it could be sea life under the thrall of the others, which really gets our uh, uh, imaginations firing, doesn't it? I always imagine tentacles when I read that, but perhaps that's just me being hopeful. Cotter <laughs> gives us a, a good, albeit fractured account of what is happening up there although in fact it's melisandre who might be our best resource in understanding what happened before the ships arrived with this vision snowflakes swelled from a dark sky and ashes rose to meet them the gray and the white whirling around each other as flaming arrows arced above a wooden wall and dead things shambled silent through the cold beneath a great grey cliff where fires burned inside a hundred caves. Then the wind rose and the white mist came sweeping in, impossibly cold, and one by one the fires went out. Afterward, only the skulls remained. And I, I think we can guess that that is hard home that Melisandre is thinking about because of the description of the great cliff so mm-hmm. that that mm-hmm. that's how hard home is described so what do you have to say about this subject lady gwyn well first i want to just say that the use of the word shambled there dead things shambled through the cold nothing that was ever up to any good has ever shambled so so <laughs> if you see that word in a, in a sentence it's you're dealing with horror pretty much so just an observation. As far as what's happening, you know, the, the dead things in the water really fascinate me. I've been talking about it uh, quite a bit. We've talked about it over in our patron discord this week, and we talked about it last night on the Ice and Fire Con panel. I am fascinated by it on a couple of levels. What they are, I don't know. Could they be, you know, zombies or not really maybe not yet zombies or, or corpses left over from what hap- whatever happened at hard home 600 years ago when we were told the waters were choked with swollen corpses could they just be things that have been lying in wait 
and wait for it because I'm going to tell you what I think the inspiration for this passage is, which, as you said, comes from this Cotter Pike's desperate letter to John in A Dance with Dragons. Uh, I think it comes from two parts of Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. In the final entry, when they're when in the uh, Fellowship of the Ring, when they're in the Mines of Moria, uh, or Khazad Doom, as the dwarves call it, the final entry in the book they find there uh, is about as creepy as it comes. It's written, we cannot get out, we cannot get out. They've taken the bridge in the second hall. Frere and Loni and Nali fell there bravely, while the rest retreated to the chamber of Mazarbul. We are still holding out hope. Owen's party went five days ago, but today only four returned. The pool is up to the wall at the west gate. The watcher in the water took Oin. We cannot get out. The end comes soon. We hear drums. Drums in the deep. They are coming. So if you read Cotter Pike's letter in tone, they are so similar to that. I mean, it's just the desperate plea of someone, you know, looking for help that probably isn't coming. And then, of course, also in The Lord of the Rings, the second influence is uh, in the, from the two towers you Sam and Frodo and Gollum traverse the dead marshes of the of the Eamon mule and uh, we had a quote from that too which is also very creepy hurrying forward Sam tripped catching his foot in some old root or tussock he fell and came heavily on his hands which sank deep into sticky ooze so that his face was brought close to the surface of the dark mirror there was a faint hiss a noisome smell went up the lights flickered and danced and swirled. For a moment, the water below him looked like some window, glazed with grimy glass, through which he was peering. Wrenching his hands out of the bog, he sprang back with a cry. There are dead things, dead faces in the water, he said with horror. Dead faces. So uh, oh, that's that one, I think, is a little bit more on the nose. Uh, just literal dead things in the water. Also worth mentioning that there are dead things in the water in Harry Potter when he and Inferni, yeah yeah yep so which i you know i suppose that probably comes from this same same influence of tolkien so i just definitely i find that very fascinating tolkien for what it's worth attributes this sort of imagery to things he saw in france in the greatest horror story of them all world war one's battle of the Somme. uh although some medievalists also point out that uh the descriptions are very reminiscent of Grendel's wilderness and Beowulf, which would have been Tolkien's area of study. But the imagery is very deep. The influences for this passage are very deep, which is probably why they fascinate me. Although deep as the influences are, I think the things in the water might in fact be quite shallow. <laughs> Just ready to grab you. So dead things in the water, Joe, have you got any, any thoughts about this? I do, but but uh, one thing I want I was thinking about while I was listening to this is, uh, yes, Tolkien probably maybe Beowulf and that kind of thing, but I was also wondering because of where these chapters take place, do you think George saw Pirates of the Caribbean? Do you think he saw that scene with the the dead climbing up the ropes? Um, <laughs> the whole, I mean, I could, he he is a pack rat. He loves taking things from everywhere and putting it in. If you wanted to think about like skeletons climbing out of the water and sacking ships or something like that. There would be no better recent example than that. I don't know if he's seen Pirates of the Caribbean, but it certainly does sound similar. Probably has, and it does. You're right. Yeah. And so for, like, what what happened there, the one thing to key in on, 
on from Melisandre's description is, of course, I think the White Mists. That's how Tormund describes the others. Like We know them as we saw them in the prologue as the Ice Demons, but apparently that's a recent thing. Uh, Tormund and the rest of the Wildlings consider them mostly to be cold white mists that always hung around the edge of their encampments that for some reason recently have started to, I guess, take form. Maybe they that's why they've been hanging around for so long. Uh, Tormund essentially just goes like, well, how do you kill a mist? Like, how do you swing a sword through something like that? It's like, okay, that makes sense. Um, I mean, and then the dead thing shambling through the cold, those are whites. Um, the part that I think that always gets people about the dead things in the water part is actually the water, not really the dead things. Because the others and their whites sort of create an obvious question. And that is, why don't they go around the wall? Why don't they go under the water around the wall and walk through? Their whites are dead. They don't need to breathe. They don't need to eat. Surely they could just go around it. Um, so this kind of creates a... Uh, what's the right word for it? It creates sort of um, a problem in people's heads where they're like, okay, well, they can go into the water. If they're at hard home and they're dead things in the water, or maybe the others showed up and they raised uh, corpses out of the harbor, that would be sort of their thing to do. That's actually something that I wondered about with um, the oncoming maybe Eldritch Apocalypse at um, at uh, Old Town, or maybe an attack on White Harbor. There's always corpses in harbors. People... They get dumped in there, they fall off ships, ships go down, there's always going to be bodies there to raise. But if the others can raise things underwater and send them underneath, why haven't they? And it sort of it raises a bigger question about the wall and exactly like what it can do. Because if they can go under the water, what's stopping them? So the only explanations you have is they are holding back for some reason. There's some reason they're not using this obvious way to go around it like every other wildling with a boat has figured out for thousands of years. Or there's something else very magical about the wall that extends beyond the actual physical, you know, ice barriers, as it were. Um, the same for Gorn's Way. We know there are many ways through the wall, but others could be attacking at any time. So this sort of creates... Uh, a bit of foreshadowing for maybe if you need a puzzle as a reader through the winds of winter, like how are they going to get through? Well, it might be a very magical solution they have to go after. Um, the show did this with the weird um, mark on Bran and the dragon thing. I, I don't really know about that, but it's creating um, a good deal of foreshadowing and uh, puzzle solving and his readers for what exactly is he going to do with this but it also sets up a lot of like i was talking about with white harbor a lot of people think well actually i don't maybe it was you guys that said this or it might have been uh history of westeros that white harbor might be uh white harbor not white as in the color but white as in w-i-g-h-t and that the one of the big attacks from the others may come there and this may be george setting up through hard home a very horrific scene where the very nice and wonderful manderleys are torn apart by the dead things in the water, as it were. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want that to happen. White Harbor seems great. I know. I want to see the merman's court, like, you know. The merman's court's going to be an undead merman's mm, court. I don't like that. But. Well, that's that's really a, a different discussion, how far they're going to get. But on the, on the subject of their, the horror of the others, I was wondering... How after the prologue and after what we've seen with Othor and heard about Hard Home, how is George going to inflict a new level of horror on us 
when the others really show up for real? You know, how can he raise the bar? Surely he hasn't played his best horror hand yet. And surely he wouldn't have done that in the very first prologue. So how is he going to elevate things, Lady Gwyn? Well, you know, zombies, whose masters also bring devastating and, dare I say, largely unsurvivable weather, is going to lead to whole new levels of human-inflicted horror. I mean, it's bad enough you got the others and their their undead army and whatever, you know, that's true horror. But, you know, the fear and desperation that rolls before them is going to lead to something George loves to talk about, humans engaging in all manner of horrific and inhuman behavior all on their own. Cannibalism, neighbor versus neighbor. I mean, those might be the least of it, but I expect that a great deal of the horror that we're going to see is going to be man versus man, not, you know, nature versus man or the other kinds of things. I think this is a theme we're, we're going to be coming back to very shortly. But um, just talking about the others, I think that the most devastating thing for us, for us as readers would be if a character that we really like and enjoy gets whited and suddenly they're sort of undead slaves for the opposition and, you know, you can't like them anymore. In, in fact, you've, you've got to want them to die. So that's a hell of a switch from, from loving this character to wanting them to be burned. It doesn't really have to be a major character, just someone... We like being completely corrupted. Someone like Hodor or something like that. That's possible. Also think there has to emerge some kind of hierarchy with the others that we're not yet aware of. I know the TV show did that from the offset and I don't think it'll be like for like at all. But I'd be surprised if there isn't some kind of hierarchy so we can see the the order of the, you know, so we can see who's the baddest of the bad, have a target that we want to take down. What do you think, Joe? Yeah, that's uh, the whole hierarchy thing and that there has to be someone to focus on. The others are largely faceless at this point. They are basically like faceless men. We don't know anything about them. So for them to become a real villain, they must in some way reflect something horrible about our characters. Uh, some people have theorized... Um, that this means that there will be a connection maybe between the Starks and the others. I mean, they are the Kings of Winter and all the other um, various like history that goes in around them. Even the story of the Night King maybe being a Stark by Old Nan, who was always right. So that's probably true. But I, th I really think the, the hardest hitting part of this will probably be at the crypts of Winterfell. And George has set this up in a very, very particular way. For one thing, the Starks, for some reason, as kids, played in the crypts like... They're just like running around statues, pretending to be ghosts, jumping out at each other. And it's like, haha, what an adorable little thing. I'm like, George, what, what, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing with these kids in these crypts? This seems like something very uh, ominous. Um, the show did yeah. sort of a version of this where um, uh, Sansa and Tyrion were down in the crypts with a bunch of... Um, the helpless people during the siege of Winterfell and all the bodies jumped out of the the um the tombs and started attacking but what was missing about that is honestly the way that they had to narrow the show 
And that is that we don't know most of the characters in the show that are in those crypts. The only like name person we really care about is Ned. And as far as the books are concerned, he's not in there yet. But as book readers, we know quite a lot of characters and have attachments to them that are already down there. Lyanna Stark is down there. Brandon Stark. Rickard Stark. Uh, eventually maybe Ned. I mean, Lady Dustin has been on the lookout for his corpse in a very p- weird way that seems like George is hinting towards something, but there's a very real chance that rather than just being a bunch of guys jumping out of tombs, that these are characters that the Starks, and in particular, um, the Star- the Crips have a very strong meaning for John. He has dreams about them all the time. He thinks about it in terms of identity. So... I would guess that George's big thing the others will do will probably have to do with the Crips of Winterfell and probably Ned, but maybe Lyanna too. Like, what if Lyanna is reanimated as a skeleton and starts to attack John, and he's already realized who she is? That would be a horrifying moment for his POV to go through. And that's the kind of, when you think of, this is, this is my rule for when you're trying to prank George. What's the worst thing you could do? What's the thing that will hurt you the most as a reader? And I think it would be John and uh, Ned's kids confronting the people in the crypts they know rather than, like I said, just random whites popping up. Several of them are missing their swords. So, you know, that iron that supposedly keeps them from rising. So Just burn the corpses. Why didn't the Starks do that? It's like George is saying, these guys are definitely going to jump up and mess people up. <laughs> yes. No one else does this. They're the only ones that do it. Oh, yeah. Iron. That'll never rust away or get moved or anything. That'll be fine forever. There's no necromancers <laughs> just a little bit north that might use these bodies. It's like they're idiots. <laughs> <laughs> just waiting. <laughs> so the crypts could be the place for some screams maybe in the final book so we've we've covered some of the horror of the undead so next we're going to refocus on the horror of the living what man can do to man and to begin joey's going to do a reading of gregor versus oberon uh God, this quote. They wrestled in the dust and blood, the broken spear wobbling back and forth. Tyrion saw with horror that the mountain had wrapped one huge arm around the prince, drawing him tighter against his chest, like a lover. Okay. Uh, Elia of Dorne, they all heard Gregor, Sir Gregor say, when they were close enough to kiss. His deep voice boomed within the helm. I killed her screaming whelp. He thrust his free hand into Oberyn's protected, unprotected face, pushing steel fingers into his eyes. Then I raped her. Clegane slammed his fist into the Dornishman's mouth, making splinters of his teeth. Wow. Uh, I, did, I, didn't, I didn't catch up on the, the sexual chemistry that George was putting in there. That's a weird thing he did with this Yeah. Scene. Yeah, just hearing it read aloud. I, I never like, noticed that before. That's, that's, that's a choice. Ew. <laughs> Gregor Clegane, what... What can be said about the the mountain? He's often called a monster in story and without. So what exactly has he done to earn that name? And is is are we being fair on this guy, Lady Gwyn, or or is has he got a soft heart underneath all that armor? What? 
that's a hot shoot me down uh, yeah definitely i mean <laughs> <laughs> we can just kick you out of the stream right now for that um no i mean we're where to start with him he's he's just really one of the true human monsters of the story long before he becomes an undead horror uh, rumors abound about him that he killed his own family his father his sister his first two wives which implies that he has a third wife kicking around somewhere god that scares me i'm scared for her we uh we know he mutilated his little brother in a dispute over a toy which their father was apparently too scared of gregor to discipline him for that he raped and murdered elia martel killed her son as we just heard we also hear later that he raped an innkeeper's daughter or actually that was a gang rape but he presided over it uh, there was the servant girl pia which was multiple occasions and one of lord bracken's daughters he led the horrific rape and and pillage of the village of sharer which led to ned attainting him and sending beric dundarian out to execute him he eventually killed eight-year-old lord lyman darry when he took castle darry and generally runs around setting the riverlands aflame with brutal sacking and pillaging and and killing and more rape and murder that's just what he does note that he does not limit himself to injuring small folk or weak and powerless people he routinely targets people of his own or higher social class people like elia martel and uh, lord bracken's daughter and and uh, little lord lyman Derry. people that he could have maybe you know captured and held for ransom in in the normal sort of course of medieval warfare right so i think I think clearly, in my opinion, he's the worst of George's human monsters, which is saying something. And uh, that was before he became uh, an undead monster, Robert Strong. So we have yet to see what Robert Strong is capable of. Uh, but I expect it to be, you know, supersized Gregor, more worse, more horrible. Yeah, what you've taken us through there was an unbelievable list of terrible deeds carried out by Gregor. It's interest, interesting to talk about him after we've talked about the others. Those others are deadly, remorseless, dark-hearted and use their magic to facilitate this evil. Gregor, though, is a human character who is every bit the monster that the others are. Clegane is a discredit to the human race and those who utilise him are also tainted. It's not a great surprise that this guy is Tywin's dog. Altogether, Gregor is a walking crime against humanity and that was when he was alive. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Yeah, that, that, there's, there's, there's no like, is Gregor. <laughs> Is it unfair to call him a monster? He he definitely is a monster. Although, inter- interestingly, George does try to give you a little bit of empathy with the weird detail that uh, due to his giganticism, he has terrible headaches and he's always drinking milk of the poppy, which I guess means that he's kind of stoned all the time. It doesn't excuse anything, but it's just like, is that the explanation we're going for? Yeah, and, and also that he's in pain and that he's... He might be continually in pain again. It's not an excuse, but there's some some small amount of pathos, right? Little, like the tiniest bit. There's like some humanity in there behind the monster. But I think Gregor is specifically designed to be the worst thing because he's set up to be sort of the anti-Duncan the Tall or anti-Bran of Tarth. Um, George has this love of these gigantic, good-hearted characters who always do the best thing. Except for Sandor, but that's because of Gregor's influence on him like a corrupting force. Gregor seems to be almost him doing a twist on that. Somebody, like every decision point that you read in, uh, through Duncan the Tall's story, imagine if he did the opposite. And that's kind of where you get with Gregor. It's almost like an intellectual exercise for him to make the worst guy he could. But one thing that I find really interesting about Gregor is the closeness of Gregor to George. And considering that George is the one writing this, I wonder if it's almost like a little joke on himself that like, this is how his characters perceive him because he's doing all these terrible things to all these people. He's very self-reflective about it in one of his other stories, the um, portraits of their children, where the characters essentially come to life and confront the author and say, why are you doing this to me? Well, Gregor may be like his own place in for the his own uh, imagination's cruelty on his own story and oberin wanted to bring justice to gregor don't weren't we all behind him but he ended up giving his life for the cause maybe a touch of arrogance crept in or more than a touch does it feel then like a cheap shot after the death of oberin that Gregor ends up being resurrected. You know, why would George resurrect him? Cheap shot or not? What do you think, Lady Gwyn? No. I think, you know, I think there's unfinished business with with Gregor. You know, Gregor and Sandor. Uh, they both reached a point where they were thought to be dead, or you know, by people in the story. Um, and but they're really not, and I think the purpose behind both of those story arcs, as divergent as they are, is because there's unfinished business between those two characters. Uh, but it's also a great opportunity for George to inject more horror into his story and make Gregor even worse, as if that's possible. But I think that <laughs> I think it is. We're going to see how possible it is coming up. Well, yeah, worse, or if not, he's just the same. He's just the same, just a killing machine. I mean, he was like this when he was alive. He was, 
just a killing machine that you can't kill. He would serve serve his masters and do whatever the hell they told him to do, all the worst stuff. But the undead storyline was already well-seeded when Gregor was brought back, so it wasn't too much of a surprise and there was grounding for it. And in this sense, it didn't feel cheap. There has been speculation that Magic has been re-emerging in this world since the birth of the dragons. So we can imagine if you were a necromancer, now would be your time, right? So Gregor's reanimation does make sense, I think. I think story-wise, Gregor is a lot of power within one man. In the short term, he can serve Cersei and help her to get a sure footing as she tries to bounce back from the disempowerment she felt at the Walk of Shame, while showing shades of Tywin thematically, like I said, Tywin used his dog. In the longer term, it might be that Sandor has a date with Destiny, Lady Gwyn mentioned this, to fight his big bully brother to the death. I have to say the show's portrayal of both men dying in a great fire really works well for both characters. Sandor finally going and facing his fear in the last moments of his life, and Ungregor the White, perhaps perishing by the the only thing that could kill him, the flames. So what do you think, Joe? I do wonder about Kogain Bowl, because it does seem that, I believe there's quotes about it, that Dan and Dave were essentially responding to the fandom yearning for it, and that's why they made it happen. Uh, some have said that maybe it will happen at Trial by Seven. I don't I don't think that one's going to happen. Sandor is still injured, I believe, on the quiet aisle, right? He has a limp. So um, probably wouldn't be a match for him. But I do like the idea that eventually they will face each other and the the whole fire thing that created them, essentially bodied them together, will be the thing that ends both of their lives. That does have a good thematic resonance to it. Um, like you were saying, I don't think there is, I don't think it's a very cheap thing to have Gregor come back. Um, I think one of the main reasons is that a lot of the characters that in universe people that the characters want to come back are good people or they want them to come back to like resume the place, the good things they were doing in their life. Like Arya asks, is it possible to bring back a skull thinking about uh, Ned? Lady Stoneheart apparently has some sort of weird thing where she wants to bring back Rob. I mean, I don't quite understand what she's hoping for considering her own situation but there's there's a lot of trying to recapture the past and george is sort of saying like no 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 uh gregor is the example that is one of the examples that the resurrection he's in he's gonna have his characters go through is going to be a massive cost that it's going to be something they they will not like at all and it's also uh serves to show that the way of justice that a lot of characters seem to be seeking is a fool's errand. Oberyn got his best shot at the guy who did him the most wrong, basically. And what did George do to him? He smashed his face in and then had the guy survive poison that no one else should. And now he may be functionally immortal. And it's like, wow, that one really blew up in your face, Oberyn. And that's sort of a lesson for the rest of the story going forward. Like, don't look for justice here. This ain't coming. That's a great point there about... Oberyn, not not knowing what he was doing there, not knowing what he was unleashing. Yeah, especially if especially if he goes after the Sand Snakes, like uh, what is it? Uh, Nymeria and Tyene are both going to be in King's Landing. If more of 
the women that Oberyn loves end up dying by Gregor's hand. I mean, that's again the whole "What would George do?" The worst thing possible. <laughs> that would be that would be it. At the least, they're going to witness the monstrosity, and they're going to be writing back to Dawn. Guess who I just saw? <laughs> Guess who was just in the by the Iron Throne? How is anybody fooled by this? How is no one put together that the eight-foot guy is Gregor Clegane? Like, come on. Well, Kevin has, because he noticed yeah. that he doesn't shit anymore. Yeah, I was going to say, I think it's heavily implied in the Kevin... The guy doesn't go to the, the toilet. He's good at holding the, the it The whole in. small council the, course, like, the whole court must be abuzz with like... Yeah, that guy. That's Gregor, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, right? It must be. <laughs> the way I see it is everybody, you know, everybody's just kind of like, we know, but we're not... But just not going to say anything because we just don't mm-hmm. know what, you know, they're all like, oh, I'm going to look over here and just pretend I don't see it. And then those the sand snakes are going to show up and they're going to be like, what, what the? We, we saw his head. Fuck? Wait a second. That's Gregor. That's Gregor. Like they even say, you know, if, if another such as him, when they're talking about whether he's still alive, one of them says to, uh, uh, to Doran, if another such as him eight feet tall, shows up in the kingdom, we'll know that Cersei screwed us over with mm-hmm. his head, you know? So they're going to show up in King's Landing and find an eight foot tall guy standing right next to Cersei and just Very like, sus. Who Very is this sus. guy? Can I see his birth certificate? He doesn't poop. Poop is going to go down. <laughs> no poop is going to go <laughs> down. He doesn't do anything. <laughs> he doesn't. Speaking of poop, he does not do that. That was one of the weird things where they were just like, yeah, the guy doesn't go to the bathroom. Like, that's the thing you're questioning about the eight foot tall mute that he doesn't use the bathroom? <laughs> Okay, on the subject of Gregor in his head, I want just a one-sentence answer from all of you, real quick. Gregor crushed Oberyn's head, but what happened to to his own? What the heck is under Robert Strong's helmet, guys? Lady Gwyn? Uh, well, we, we once had a theory about Rob's head being... But, but I will... I think that what I believe... His own ugly, undead head is what's there under his helmet. I tend to agree that it's probably just his own head, but my favorite tinfoil I've heard about it is that it's Robert Baratheon's head. That they dug up his corpse, and it's a present to Cersei (laughs) to make her uh, dead, horrible husband her basically undead slave. I just don't want to think, does the head have a will of its own? Is he going to start eating all the boar and all the fruits around? (laughs) Okay, I think either his own head... Or some kind of comedy stitching monstrosity like the dwarf's head. Now that would be creepy horror, so I'd go for it. It probably is just just his own head and they've sent the fake skull to dawn. But you can't rule out Kyburn sort of stitching something on like some kind of horror B-movie. Okay, and on the subject of horror B-movies, let's talk about... Kyburn, why don't you begin begin us, Lady Gwyn, with another reading? Okay. This is Cersei talking to Kyburn. This man Bronn, I cannot say I like the notion of an enemy so close. His power all derives from Lawless. If we were to produce the elder sister. Alas, said Kyburn, I fear that Lady Felice is no longer capable of ruling Stokeworth or indeed of feeding herself. I have learned a great deal from her, I am pleased to say, but the lessons have not been entirely without cost. 
I hope I have not exceeded your grace's instructions. Oh dear, this this passage, really, when I read it, I was just so creepy. It creeped me out more than anything, mm-hmm. I think, in terms of the actual nope. making your skin crawl and giving you goosebumps. So what I, I was going to ask you guys first, what do you think of the inspirations for Kyburn? Some of them are obvious and perhaps there are some less obvious ones that you might know. Lady Gwyn? Yeah, I mean, I think you get the ultimate necromancer, Victor Frankenstein. Uh, Shelley's novel is subtitled The Modern Prometheus. So that's there's an indirect influence as well. Prometheus is the character who created man from clay, uh, while Frankenstein created his creature from human remains after studying chemistry and decay in living beings. Kyburn tells Cersei, For hundreds of years the men of the Citadel have opened the bodies of the dead to study the nature of life. I wish to understand the nature of death, so I open the bodies of the living. For that crime, the grey sheep shamed me and forced me into exile. But I understand the nature of life and death better than any man in Old Town. So he's basically saying that he's a vivisectionist right there, which... (laughs) Yes, and necromancer, so a great combination. There are definitely similarities, as Lady Gwyn said, with Frankenstein and his monster. But of course, George goes several shades darker. Kyburn reminds me of something, like I said, from a horror B-movie. The insane Nazi vivisectionist or something like that. I'm sure you understand the trope that I'm trying to communicate there. Um, But rather than making the man look as horrid as his deeds are, George makes him look, as Cersei thinks, like your favourite grandfather. He's got the look of someone you can trust, but downstairs in his basement laboratory, there's people with pieces of their bodies missing in the name of his science. So, yeah, he looks rather lovely, but... He's got one of the darkest hearts in the series. What do you think, Joe? Who's the inspirations? Oof. Well, the whole thing about the not being able to feed herself and the way that line is written reminds me just like heavily of Hannibal Lecter. Um, The way that he experiments with people's bodies. I mean, he eats them. I don't think Kyburn's doing that. But certainly it seems like he's going for a similar idea especially since most people find Hannibal Lecter to be a charming personality and he's very popular in Baltimore before he he starts you know killing and um, eating people that kind of thing especially he also has an amateur's interest in um, this section that's part of the thing he gets out of it so that may be something but I also uh, wanted to dip into the realm of Lovecraft because the whole idea of the mad guy, the mad scientist in the basement doing things no one can understand, but sort of flies under the radar by um, clutching the power or being just too charming is something Lovecraft used quite often. A lot of his characters are like that, but the most famous one is obviously uh, Herbert West from the story Herbert West Reanimator, where Herbert and his assistant essentially ran around to graveyards and were digging up bodies, much like Frankenstein. It's kind of like his own take on the Frankenstein story, but the the mannerisms of Herbert West and the way he talks about what he's doing seems very, very similar to Kyburn. And um, especially with the what happens in the end that Herbert West doesn't uh, essentially create monsters in the end. Um, several of them, I think. And, um, 
yeah, I, I, it seems he seems very much just like a Lovecraft character taken whole cloth from one of the old stories and plopped into this one. So some ideas about the genesis of Kyburn as a character there. I'm sure that he's taken bits from numerous places, as we're suggesting, as as seems to be this pattern with character development. So Kyburn is very odd. Even though he looks like a grandfather, he's an oddball. You know, he's lost his chain. You know that something's wrong with him. It's the stuff he comes out with and the things he's interested in. So why does Cersei, who's got hefty kind of ideals where she sees herself, she wants to be the very top. Why, why is she palling up with Kyburn, Lady Gwyn? Well, thank you for asking this, because it gives me yet another opportunity to roll my eyes at Cersei, who really pals up with every, you know, unsuitable person she can get her hands on in A Feast for Crows. Like, let's face it. So what Kyburn offers at first is this kind of utter obsequiousness, willingness to do whatever she asks him to do. Later on, she becomes enamored of his talents for making people talk, or making inconvenient people stop talking. Uh, and then also the fact that he is utterly amoral. I see. I do think that she is attracted by that. Uh, it, it says she's fascinated by his claims about understanding the nature of life and death. And that quote I read earlier. But, you know, initially, all it took for him to catch her attention was a, yes, ma'am, whatever you say, ma'am. Yeah, and I think that Kyburn facilitates Cersei's worst impulses. In the cases of Felice and others, Cersei shows no emotion, knowing, or perhaps not quite knowing, the fate that she'd bestowed on them. She really has no conscience, and when Kyburn starts delivering her requests, she is then her perfect go-to man. In reanimating Sir Gregor, he has literally breathed new life into House Lannister, and that's something we'll be seeing a lot of in the Winds of Winter. We're going to see how powerful Robert Strong is. If Gregor was effective as a human, what the heck is he going to be like now he's undead? He's almost like a machine. And for the time being, at least, he's devoted wholly to Cersei, but via Kyburn. So... I think the reason that Cersei values Kyburn so much has to do with the way that she normally gets people to do what she wants. And it's largely through fear and intimidation or sexuality. She she either threatens them with death or essentially says, Let, let's go to the bone zone, as it were. Um, Kyburn is devoted to her in a way that uh, it seems to be attracted to her personality and her rulership style that they kind of feed off of each other. It's one of the few people that I think from Cersei's perspective may seem feel like a true believer in her rule rather than somebody that is just tolerating her until the next person comes along. Um, I think that has to, I think that has a lot to do with it. And also the fact that like Kyburn's one of the few people that is willingly helping her. I mean, she's paying him and she's giving him power, but it seems like he's on board with pretty much everything. And she doesn't really have someone like that in her life. Yeah, I agree. He is, like, like I said, he's delivering on, on these, you know, he's promising her things, but he's 
he's coming through and the, no one else is helping her since Tywin's gone from from that moment she's been a, a bit of a lost soul but he, he yeah he, he he lets her feel like Tywin it's like her own little Kevin yeah and she just does not seem to care about the methods he uses so talking about the methods why don't we briefly speculate what the hell happens in this horror episode down in Kyburn's basement. Lady Gwyn? Well, we had a taste of his ability to torture with the, the scene with the blue bard, but it's really that Felice quote is really the only inkling we have of what he's doing with the women Cersei gives him. Prior to Felice, in case you missed it, she gave him her maid, Sinel, about whom Kyburn later says just this, Alas, the poor girl is quite exhausted, which prompts Cersei to give him these two female puppeteers whose show depicting a dragon devouring a lion she had found treasonous. And then he he tells her, well, the puppeteers are quite used up. So that's when she gives him Felice. Uh, it's all very vague, but it's extremely evocative of this sort of silence of the lamb sort of thing. Like, like Joe was saying, you know, it's definitely got that vibe so is his statement about felice indicates that she's still alive if somewhat damaged perhaps even vegetative which i said shed some new light on those statements about the other three women that he made previously so uh last night i was on a um a panel on over on the isofarcon youtube channel we we're talking about zombies and i was speculating that maybe he used their blood to replace Gregor's poisoned blood. You know, Gregor's blood is noted to have been, you know, to be this kind of black, you know, really uh, polluted by the poison that, that uh, Oberyn used. So, you know, maybe he had to do some sort of blood transfusion. Actually, even as I said that, I afterwards I remember, did the show show something, do something like that? Yeah, there was a blood replacement scene in the show. I don't know. I guess that was something from my subconscious. Maybe it wasn't really an original thought. But anyways, could be that. It could be, you know, people wonder if he's, if something about the creative power of the female body is, is part of his magic or whatever he's doing. Yeah, I have seen various theories on what, what you're talking about there, Lady Gwyn. And for me... Personally, I think George maintains this element of amb ambiguity on purpose. No one knows exactly what's happening with Felice. And it's exactly this unknown that creates the horror. That's, this is why I find it more creepy than anything. Because perhaps if it was described, it would be horrific. But at least I'd know what was going on. When it's left to our imaginations, we can only think the worst. So sometimes that kind of unknown is worse than the most graphic of details. Jay? So one of the things that he talks about this, I think this is more played up in the show, but I believe it happens in the books too, that he really wonders about the border between life and death and that he likes thinking about where exactly, well, how far you can push a body, how far you can push somebody until they finally break down and understanding 
the internal organs and that kind of thing. So like you guys were talking about vivisections, he's probably like taking notes the whole time. And at some point he's going to publish like um, his own very horrific textbook about how the internal workings of bodies work. Um, so usually people do that with corpses, but Kyburn, that's not enough for Kyburn. He wants to see the exact moment of death, which I think lends to the idea that he has found somewhere in between to keep Gregor, that that's where his studies have kind of taken him. I, I don't know. There, there's this one very creepy scene in um, one of the later Hannibal movies where uh, he takes off somebody's skull and then like feeds their own brain to them that kind of thing and i have to imagine that that's the sort of thing that george is probably calling on here that there's maybe like lobotomies there like the brain if you're talking about the border between life and death it has to do with the brain more than any of the others so you have to assume that's what kyburn is focusing on with the yeah. women yeah if i do this what happens over there right maybe he has um some primitive way where he's poking them and seeing oh. what happens which is Stimulus essentially response. how in real life, uh, that's how medical professionals learned how they work. They mostly did them on animals, but Kyburn's a horror story character, <laughs> right. so he's doing them on real people. Yes. Alive people. Don't worry about it, Kyburn. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so to finish up with Kyburn and Robert Strong, because we've looked at both of them, I wonder, will Robert Strong turn on his master? This is a kind of trope. Why don't you explain it, Lady Gwyn? Well, y you know... Sure. Frankenstein's monster turned on him. I mean, I, don't, <laughs> I hope it's not too much of a spoiler if you haven't read Frankenstein to tell you that uh, his monster turned on him, killed his uh, killed his little brother and um, maybe also his fiance, if I remember correctly. You know, swore his undying hatred to him, ran away, you know, basically turned on his creator so surpassed his creator turned on him i mean it's just that ultimate sort of you know master and pupil trope um and we, but we should never forget that robert strong started out as gregor so in my opinion he's unlikely to be controlled by his creator kyburn indefinitely because i i mean if there's any bit of gregor left inside of him which i have to assume there is a whole lot of it uh, it's going to come out and he's going to be, you know, Gregor, the evil monster. So That's a great point. I think that Gregor might have done, done his master's bidding wherever he was asked, but still he did kill one of his own men for snoring. I think there's still a bit of Gregor left in Robert Strong for sure. And one day it might just burst out. Okay, so next on our agenda is a a place which gives gives Bran the creeps thoroughly, even before he ends up there. It's the night for everyone. Every 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 reader of A Song of Ice and Fire knows that this is the creepiest location. So I'm going to begin with a short reading. Jojen gazed up at him with his dark green eyes. There's nothing here to hurt us, your grace. 
Bran wasn't so certain. The Night Fort had figured in some of Old Dan's scariest stories. It was here that the Night's King had reigned, before his name was wiped from the memory of man. This was where the Rat Cook had served the Andal King his prince and bacon pie, where the 79 Sentinels stood their watch, where brave young Danny Flint had been raped and murdered. This was the castle where King Sherit had called down his curse on the Andals of old, where the Prentice boys had faced the thing that came in the night, where blind Simeon Star-Eyes had seen the Hellhounds fighting. Mad Axe had once walked these yards and climbed these towers, butchering his brothers in the dark. So that's just... uh, a brief reading to outline how creepy the night fort is. So I was going to ask first of all, why does George bring Bran here? Joe, have you got any ideas? Well, for one thing, a lot of uh, Bran's early chapters have to do with him having very naive ideas and enjoying things that uh, he tells old Nan that his favorite stories are the scary ones. And it's like, well, they're only scary because, I mean, he only likes them because they are far away from you. You would not want to be in any of those stories. Yeah, In the same way, like, a lot of people like slasher movies. You would not want to be one of the people running from Jason Voorhees. That would be horrific. So George is essentially having Bran live the scary stories that he doesn't like. And it's serving as kind of his long-term growing up brand very, very quickly since he abandoned the five-year gap strategy. The same thing happens when he meets the the three-eyed raven, where Bran's like, oh, well, he must be like a wizard in a tree. It'll be amazing. We'll be best friends forever. And Blood Raven is instead a weird corpse ingrained in a weirwood. And Bran's like, well, I'll be able to walk again. And, Br- and Blood Raven's like, <laughs> No, man, (laughs) that's not happening. So it's kind of, um, I I think, I think that's the main purpose of it. He's showing Bran the, the truth of the, of the world and how the stories and the future that he wants for himself is probably going to be a lot worse once he gets to it. And Bran's story as a young man in a scary world is a lot about fear. Like you said, it begins with the, the stories that he's kind of been fed Even when there was peace, he was interested in these stories. A young boy coming to terms with life and all the scary things. Yet his world is turned upside down and suddenly he's not in his bedroom listening to these stories. As Joe said, he's living them. He has to deal with his fear. The line from Ned, the only time a man can be brave is when he's afraid, is really a setup for Bran's interior world from very early on. George therefore wanted to keep riffing on Bran's fears as he and his friends tried to navigate a cruel and strange world without the guidance of competent adults. At the Night Fort, we get to explore his fears and George also gets to build his world giving us backstory and short horror stories in the form of local legends. All of this is leading to Bran's meeting with Bloodraven, where the boy has to accept darkness in its various forms as part of his training to be a greenseer. So, what about the legends we hear about pertinent to the Night Fort? Lady Gwyn, have you got a favourite? 
Yeah, well, I mean, they're all kind of fascinating. I mean, what is what's just Simeon Star Eyes? I I find that fascinating. That with the Hellhounds. I mean, just his what you hear about Simeon Star Eyes prior to this, you don't realize that he ever had any proximity to the Wall or you know to the Night Force or this thing with him having these shining blue eyes. Just sounds very suspicious in light of that. That they're all interesting stories that I'd love to hear the rest of. I think one of the favorite ones that I, that we hear quite a bit of is, is Maddox. Uh, it says he was Bran thinking about the story of Maddox. It says he remembered what old man had said of Maddox, how he took his boots off and prowled the castle halls barefoot in the dark with never a sound to tell you where he was, except for the drops of blood that fell from his ax and his elbows and the end of his wet red beard. So there he is, shambling around. Shambling. Covered in gore, with blood dripping from his axe. I mean... Doesn't Bran hear something and he thinks, oh my God, that's the blood dripping. He hears dripping. He hears, you know, because he's in the night fort, which is disintegrating around him, and he hears some kind of dripping noise, and he thinks, it's Mad Axe! I mean, it's just a great kid, you know, horror story, but... I, 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 why is his beard red and wet and dripping with blood? I don't know why. <laughs> Again, <laughs> it's so the unknown. Time. They're all good. What about what about the thing that came in the night? Yeah, the the thing that came in the night. I'll recap, people. That's the that's the when it says apprentice boys. That's what it's talking about. These guys were apprentices in the Night's Watch, and they saw a strange thing, but their memories of the thing differed. Three of them died and one went completely mad. A century later, the thing returned with the dead apprentices behind in shackles. I'm sure they were shambling along, Lady Gwyn. Imagine thinking about this when you're at the night fort. It's scary stuff and makes us wonder if it's related to the others. It could certainly be about an other or else comes from a long tradition of natural fear against them. Joe? Well, uh, one thing about Maddox that um, is actually going to come up later because I'm doing a, um, a viewing party with my patrons about The Shining, and I'm pretty sure Maddox is just Jack Torrance. I'm pretty, because ja uh, George and Stephen King are very good friends. They have been for a long time. They read each other's stories. I would not be shocked with the way that story reads and the horror that George was kind of like. Uh, giving a nod to his old buddy Steve and importing one of his most famous characters into his spookiest place. Um, me and Bookshelf Stud and San Rixian did a did a stream about that a, a, a while ago. Actually, another Halloween stream where we were talking about all the connections between The Shining and actually Bran's journey to the Night Fort. But my favorite story is actually um, The Rat Cook. And I think it's not only is it just a very spooky, scary story with cannibalism and all, all the weird things about turning into rats, which uh, evokes Lovecraft and the rat in the walls. But I think the best thing about it is that it's meant to tell you something very deep about Northern culture and the ideas of vengeance and the ideas of murder and guest right and like sort of defining for you which crimes are worse than others. And it's like guest right was worse than murder, worse than cannibalism. And... Um, some of these are just kind of fun. Like the 79 Sentinels tells you something about like 
the the seriousness of abandoning the Night's Watch. Mad Axis is kind of a, a murder story, but the Rat Cook is really something that George uses, uh, especially with Wyman Manderley, but throughout the story to make sure that his character, that you as a reader, understand a very fundamental part about Northern culture that does not really exist in our current time. Yeah, it really becomes a central device, doesn't it? When we're mm. in Storm of Swords and and the Red Wedding happens, and that, that that's. Th- you know, we learn about the rat, the rat cook in the next few chapters after the Red Wedding. He's like, well, you know, that chapter's finished, but this is what happens. Vengeance, nor, you know, the northern northern law and vengeance together. So, yeah, I do think it, it is a device. And going forward, do we think that this is all a big setup for something really horrific happening at the night forts before our very eyes in one of the next couple of books lady gwyn perhaps the sacrificial death by burning of an innocent child i mean it would pair well right we have melisandre <laughs> on the stream with us <laughs> melisandre says Almost like there's some sort of insider knowledge. <laughs> oh no. Sandra and George. I mean, you heard it here first. That's true. And Maddox. We got uh, actually yeah, we, with that light, the Oak Boy, you look a lot like Jack Torrance at the moment. So it <laughs> yes, all works. The vampire uh, version. Pointing wrongly, wrongly. Yeah. <laughs> so it is pretty weird that Celise kind of takes a little shine to this place. Oh, that would make a nice place to live for a while. Okay. <laughs> she, she whatever. Do you want to read some of the description? Because it's kind of like, like if you just, just paraphrase the description, and it's absolutely. Do you have some of the description handy? I Go do have it. it here. I have it. Um, it says, uh, you know, the abandoned night fort has broken towers and a maze of tunnels connecting its vault, uh, uh, connecting its vaults and tunnels. It's got the rat-filled great hall has only one remaining wall. The, uh, the yards have become small forest. A twisted weirwood grows through a hole in the kitchen. There are trees in the stables. Y- you know, I mean, it's it's a ruin. <laughs> uh, the, the thing that really got me was the rat-filled great hall with only one remaining wall. Like, what do you, what does Celise think? Is, well, Celise S- just... is looking at it like, well, there's a fixer-upper. Well, she's, <laughs> yeah, she's a, her, her real estate agent. <laughs> George, real estate agent, comes up again. <laughs> yeah, a real estate agent, Jon Snow, is, is like, I don't think you really want this place. Just like, yes, I do. Because reasons. I don't really know what her reasons Stannis are. Stannis, too. He's like, oh, this sounds great. This is, this is definitely where I should live because it's the just biggest it's castle, big. right? Yeah. Uh, the weird thing is, though, it it's been fixed up since then. Solis and Stannis have gotten John to send the builders with uh, Othel Yarwick and they have, they claim they have made the night fort livable again. And uh, this is a, this is the theory I have uh, with that same stream I did with bookshelf stud and Sinrixian. And I was thinking about the fact that after John is killed, those night's watch brothers probably can't really hang around castle black. They probably have to run somewhere because it was really a small number rather than the way it was portrayed in the show. It was like only like three or four guys, I think that did it. So they're going to have to run. And it's noticed that the guys that did it, one of them is Yarwick. So I was wondering if perhaps 
the Night's Watch uh, traitors are going to run to the Night Fort with Selyse to escape the ensuing battle. And if John has to go there, and in his resurrected, maybe a bit more feral, a bit more angry form that most people think is coming, like we were talking about the problems of resurrection, that you come back very horrifically, what if uh, John does a Mad Axe impression and goes room to room hunting down his former brothers, killing them, taking off his shoes beforehand, and all you can hear is the drip, drip of blood off Longclaw. <laughs> wow. There's a new, I thought I had it all. There's a new theory. There we go. <laughs> there we go. See, so what we what can we call that? First. John John Axe, John, John Maddox. Yeah, John the Maddox. I mean, he does use most of the stories productively, like we were mm-hmm. talking about. Maddox hasn't been used productively, right. so I was like, what could right. be the reason? Well, a, a massacre at the Night Fort by a very angry Night's Watch brother certainly fits sure the bill. Does. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's a good point because actually one of the things we talked about right near the end of our thing last night on zombies was uh, was whether the seventy nine Sentinels could wake up you know be raised as zombies i mean they are bodies that have been stored in essentially ice cells just like john's corpses that the lord commander's corpses that are kept in ice cells unlike them the 79 sentinels as far as we know are not bound in iron chains so they've got nothing holding them back should they somehow be released from their uh imprisonment there i guess they probably would rise and there's no reason why they wouldn't they weren't burned like they should have been. <laughs> so. mm, just like the crypts, the conspicuous corpses sti- sticking around with necromancers on the way. There's going to be some old ass skeletons walking around by the end of this story. <laughs> well, no, they'd probably be pretty fresh. Like, um, like scientists have found um, corpses from thousands of years ago that are relatively whole because they've been preserved by um, ice sheets. Like the uh, the famous, uh, what's his name, Otzi or something like that? The guy that they found that had been murdered. He was, when they when the hiker first found the body, they called in the police because they thought it was a murder. It's like, well, clearly this is a fresh body. And they're like, this guy's been dead for thousands of years. Ice preserves, man. Nice. So do we have time for one last section? Joe, are you, you going to be able to be with us for another 20 minutes? Yeah, uh, I don't. my thing's not starting until 8 p.m. Okay, so rather than end it there, we'll have one last horrific section on an event that's just a different kind of horror. You know, we've explored the necromancers and the vivisectionist, but the Red Wedding was really a different kind of horror. So Rob Stark was seeking to... Make amends with House Frey after breaking a marriage pact arranged by his mother and Walder Frey. Entering the chapter, the reader just senses. It knows that something is amiss, even if you don't know what it is. It's just hitting you around the face. The music's bad. The food's bad. There's just something not right. But few of us were prepared for what came next. The Frey's turn on the Starks and on all the guests during the wedding, breaking guest right and murdering many Northerners, including their king, Rob. Catelyn watches on in absolute horror and murders innocent fool Jingabel as she starts to unravel. 
having Kat's POV gave us unfettered access to her degeneration into madness, and the sequence is one of the most horrific in the saga, given the emotive and personal nature of it all. As her throat is cut at the chapter's end, it's difficult to even look at the page. I remember being so horrified. So, guys, personally speaking, how much of a shock was that sequence, Lady Gwyn? This is a place where words fail me always. I just I can't even describe it. So, I, all I could say was horrific. It just, just absolutely. Terrific. Yeah, it's so bad you can't even describe it. The words can't give justice to the kind of feeling in your stomach that that was unleashed. I suspected something was coming, but I, I kind of ignored all the nagging thoughts in my head. I deluded myself that something like this could not happen, even in a series where George has already pulled a coup de theatre by removing Ned's head in the first book. But the detail of the final descriptions, the way the scene is being described as she scratches herself and so on, really make it my top horror moment of the series, I think. And Joe, what do you think? Yeah, it's um, it, it's one of those ones that's hard to even go back to read. Um, not even, even if you know it's coming, it still hits you in some really soft places and I think the way that George shuts it up it's why it's so effective is that um as many of you may know he used to be a screenwriter he worked on um what was it the Twilight Zone he also worked on Beauty Beauty and the Beast. Beast and one of yeah and one of the things he was very frustrated about he's written about is that he could not make interesting things happen to his characters. He could not make bad things stick because they have the series has to keep going. The character the protagonists have to come back. Well not in the Twilight Zone, but definitely Beauty and the Beast. And this is one of those ones where he really like you said, uh was a coup de the theatre, where he really breaks the conventions of popular storytelling. There's no no way do you think that Rob's gonna die. And especially not from Kat's POV, because even Ned, his I don't think his death came from his POV, right? It came from Arya's. So he's he's kept that back that he had, that he, you have this belief it's going to keep going. You really like Rob. A lot of people don't like Cat, but they also have a lot of um, skin in the game, so to speak, for the Starks as they are uh, presented as the good guys in the story. And like you were talking about deluding yourself, that's that's one of those things where. Um, when I watch TV, there's a lot of I smugly think to myself like, "Oh, this this can't happen. They have to keep the series going. The the character has to come back." It's the same problem a lot of people have with like the Marvel movies or like DC uh, comics with the movies. It's that nothing. It's always the minor characters die. They actually ended up doing that in Game of Thrones to their own to my chagrin, where they end up keeping the big name characters and. Oh, which character would die? Oh, it'll be, always be the least important. Like when they did the Beyond the Wall thing, it was like, well, which one of these guys is going to die in this surrounded by whites? Well, it'll be Beric. Or no, it'll be Thoros because he has nothing left to do. And George really broke that. And he, yeah, and it's more than that, though. It's tapping into the experiencing Catelyn's total falling of the world around her and realizing she is dead and there's nothing she can do about it and it's uh like like i said what what will george do the worst thing possible and that was the worst thing possible 
So I was going to ask you guys how it affected you on, on your first read, looking for sort of personal anecdotes or memories of sort of how it affected you, you as a human being, Lady Gwynne. I don't really remember, you know, it just I probably blocked it out. I mean, it was it was devastating. I'm sure I wanted to throw my book out the window. Like, that's what a lot of people say. Or I've heard people say they literally threw their book at the wall and wouldn't pick it up for a while. I, I just was so, so devastated and probably deeply sad for a long time. But, uh, you know, in, in terms of horror, what strikes me about this and I always kind of say this about, you know, when, when we see, you know, when we watch movies and stuff, the, the things that could really happen, that, that's what really bothers me. You know, I, I could I could watch anything that's, that's you know, far out and is very unlikely to happen and doesn't bother me. But then the things that, that are possible really affect me very deeply. And madness is as we see with cat you know that's a quite a different kind of horror you get violence and blood and gore and all that stuff is bad enough but the breaking of catlin's mind is just one of those elements that we as humans with our fragile minds and psyches can relate to on a very basic level and i i uh, think we were talking earlier about whether george has used this this kind of theme in some of his short stories um, I know I, I was thinking of all the times that he uses grief and loneliness, which walk a very fine line with madness. Uh, those are very, very prevalent themes in most of his short stories, um, mental fragility, that sort of thing. And Joe, you said you mentioned one story that I hadn't read where he used a kind of a madness theme. Oh, uh, this Tower of Ashes. Go read that one. But <laughs> yeah. I, I remember I, I read it. Late at night, I was on my own, and I couldn't couldn't believe, you know, what I was reading, the horror of it, and I never felt so punched in the gut by a writer. I didn't have anyone that I could sort of talk to about it, and it felt like a great burden, you know. I, I remember having a meal with my family and just wanting to tell them, you know, Rob Stark's dead, you know. <laughs> they, they wouldn't have known what I was talking about. So I just had this kind of nagging emptiness for days where I was just privy to this horror and I couldn't really get out of my system by talking to anyone about it. Joe? So one thing I was I was trying to put in perspective was like what other stories have had this happened in where I felt similarly betrayed and and just like totally hurt by what happened. And there aren't really any but maybe the closest for a lot of readers was in lord of the rings when gandalf died a lot of a lot for a lot of people especially because he read it young and gandalf is a favorite character people were like oh no where's the story gonna go after this and then he comes back and everything's great but the red wedding is almost like if the fellowship died and then you had to keep going with the story the entire fellowship if they all just bit it right, right. there if they all <laughs> died in the mines of moria what? <laughs> It's like, who is this story about <laughs> right. now? Like, what's what's going to happen? And rather than just, like, playing with that as an intellectual exercise, George said, yeah, let's do that. Let's kill the basically the main characters in the Storm of Swords, and then we'll just move forward from there. Yeah, that, that, that was it. Yeah, like you said, who's the story about now? You know, what? You've just taken the King of the North out of the game. 
the War of the Five Kings. Like that was what the first three books are about. And George is like, remember those guys yeah. north of the wall? <laughs> Just gonna sweep the board clean. And, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so it's been a horrific evening so far, but hopefully horrific in the right ways. I think we're gonna end proceedings by a reading. When Lady Gwyn did this reading um, in our Catelyn episode, I think it was one of our best ones. I think uh, listeners have, have said that. So we thought we'd have a crack at doing it live, Lady Gwyn. What do you say? The Red Wedding? Try not to claw your face? I won't claw my face and I won't scream. Because in, in that episode, I really did scream. But yeah, I'll read it. Um, I'll try. Give it a go. <laughs> A man in dark armor and a pale pink cloak, spotted with blood, stepped up to Rob. Jamie Lannister sends his regards. He thrust his longsword through her son's heart and twisted. Rob had broken his word, but Catelyn kept hers. She tugged hard on Aegon's hair and sawed at his neck until the blade grated on bone. Blood ran hot over her fingers. His little bells were ringing, 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 and the drum went boom, doom, boom. Finally, someone took the knife away from her. The tears burned like vinegar as they ran down her cheeks. Ten fierce ravens were raking her face with sharp talons and tearing off strips of flesh, leaving deep furrows that ran red with blood. She could taste it on her lips. It hurts so much, she thought. Our children, Ned. All our sweet babes. Rickon, Bran, Arya, Sansa, Rob, Rob. Please, Ned, please, make it stop. Make it stop hurting. The white tears and the red ones ran together until her face was torn and tattered, the face that Ned had loved. Catelyn Stark raised her hands and watched the blood run down her long fingers over her wrists beneath the sleeves of her gown. Slow red worms crawled along her arms and under her clothes. It tickles. That made her laugh until she screamed. Mad, someone said. She's lost her wits. And someone else said, make an end. And a hand grabbed her scalp, just as she'd done with Jingle Bell. And she thought, no, don't, don't cut my hair. Ned loves my hair. Then the steel was at her throat, and its bite was red and cold. Poof. Sorry. Ouch. <laughs> Mm-mm. Thank you, Lady Gwyn. That was very uh, emotive. I'm sorry. You hit all the <laughs> all the right notes. So I don't. <laughs> she would have screamed at the parts when she screamed, but it would it would uh, it would be too loud for the mic. So it was a kind of muted version, but very good. It was more well. I don't say more fun, but you know. It was fun when I could scream. More fun. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes. Red wedding fun. fun. Good one, lady. Uh, Yeah. Okay, so guys, if you're still with us and you haven't, um, you didn't leave early during the red wedding reading, it wasn't too depressing for you. We wish you a happy Halloween. 
thank you for choosing to be with us and enjoying our inaugural live stream. I think we could do this every year. So, Joe, thank you so much for joining us. You are a fantastic guest, always sharp. Why don't you tell us about your YouTube channel and what you're up to, what your plans are, what you've got coming out? Sure. As always, I am very happy to join you guys on whatever you ask me to do. Uh, on my YouTube channel, I tend to... Actually, I posed a couple of kind of tinfoil theories during this stream. That's kind of what I tend to do. I like writing uh, theories and um, character analysis uh, during the whole quarantine thing which isn't really a quarantine anymore i've been doing a, a quite a lot of live streams uh weekly ones choosing random topics going for it lady gwyn was on just a little while ago talking about liana stark um which was a very lovely time uh upcoming for me uh actually later tonight if you guys um some of my patrons are here so uh, at 8 p.m., we're going to be doing a watch party with The Shining, as I as I talked about earlier. Um, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, so about an hour and so from now. Uh, upcoming videos, um, I'm going to be putting out dual videos. So the first one is going to be a brief history of the five-year gap and what it is and why it came about. And the reason for that is because the second video is a continuation of my series on Pretty Maris and Brienne and Kago corpse killer and sandor i'll be unmasking like a scooby-doo villain who the tattered prince truly is and i get tired of explaining in each video what the five-year gap is so i'm just gonna make a video saying what it is very briefly and just be like just, just go watch this and then you... so i don't have to explain it again like i've had to in the other two um also with those there'll be some uh giveaways going on with that as well as some um channel relaunch sort of things uh san rixian has provided a lot of new art and stuff that I'm officially going to put up once that goes live, along with some other goodies. So you have th that stuff to go to look forward to. Um, I think my next video after that uh, will be... What will it be? Oh, yeah, it's going to be... Um, I kind of alluded to it during this live stream, the idea that for some reason it seems like Lady Stoneheart wants to resurrect Rob Stark. And I just wanted to explore that more. Could it happen? Why could it happen? What would be the effect? Um, so... Look forward to those, you guys. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> that one will be. <laughs> a lot of more horror, yeah. Like I was saying, it's hard to read a George R. R. Martin story and not have horror it come up because it's pretty is. much it one of the primary themes. A big influence of his. So um, so this is all, it's always a good time to talk about, you know, his influences, etc. This time of year, so. Anyways, thank you so much for being here, Joe. I do appreciate it. Just so you know, what's folks who are listening, what's going on for us, our installment three of our Dance of the Dragon series with History Westeros came out today. While we were talking, the podcast version was released about uh, 45 minutes ago and about a half an hour ago, the YouTube video dropped. We ran over. It was supposed to go from one to the other, but we, we ran over, which was fine. Uh, it's a pre-recorded video, but it's right now uh, premiering over on the History of Westeros uh, YouTube channel. So we are actually going to hop over there and uh, chat with people for a little bit. And that's what's going on with us. And I'm sure we'll be uh, back with another live stream sometime next month. Uh, date and topic to be determined, but we're going to be diving back into our Winds of Winter Primer next. So we look forward to that.
So you guys have a great Halloween evening. Thanks for all your support of the live stream so far. There will be more and a special shout out to all of our chat room mods. We couldn't do this without you guys. So we really appreciate it. Thanks to each and every one of our patrons who continue to support us and keep Radio Westeros afloat. If you want to support us as a patron too, check out our campaign on Patreon, which does include all manner of incentives, early access, shout outs and so on. Go and check it out, guys. So we'll see you soon. Enjoy the Dance of the Dragons 3 that's out now as Lady Gwyn said and have a great Halloween night. See you next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.